Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Toby Harvey is a startup junkie and aspiring change agent, now helping to lead the team at Pager as general manager and a founding team member. Pager is helping to revolutionize healthcare by using text to facilitate dialogue with nurses, text, FaceTime, and more to um, dialogue with nurses in order to better direct you to the doctor you need and possibly even reduce the need for a visit. No more going to the doctor and realizing you need to see someone else or see a different specialist. What a novel concept. Pager is there leading the way. Toby started his career as an intern at Gilt and ultimately rose to become manager of strategy and BD at Gilt City. It's quite the story. Listen for it. He, he yearned for the world of smaller startups and became a uh, BD and strategy director of two firms, Time Hop and Cory Booker's Waywire, uh, before joining Pager's founding team. It's a modern tale of entrepreneurship, and uh, we are thrilled to have Toby here to share it. In the uh, in the world of in the words of uh, of General Stockdale, who am I and why am I here? Look that one up. Um, I'm Jeremy Scheinwald. I'm the founder of the Mission Driven Group and longtime board member and passionate volunteer podcaster with VFA Venture for America. Um, I started the Smart People Should Build Things Venture for America podcast almost two years ago, or maybe a year and a half ago or more. Um, I don't know why so many caveats today. Because VFA had so many amazing entrepreneurs in its network who each had their own unique stories to tell about their paths through entrepreneurship, and I knew that many entrepreneurs could learn from and benefit from their stories. Venture for America VFA is a fellowship program which attracts enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and thus help to revitalize America's cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to, how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources that fellows need to become entrepreneurs themselves. To learn more about Venture for America and support our work, you can visit www.ventureforamerica.org. As I always note, I um, have been involved with VFA. I'm a huge advocate. I want to encourage you, if you're listening, if you've been enjoying the podcast, that this sounds like something that's appealing to you, to uh, check out the site and to even consider applying for the fellowship. It's a tremendous group of people doing Really amazing things, and even this week we had uh, a little New York Times mention of uh, of our uh, fellows who started Bonza Pasta. Um, check that out as well. Anyway, enough about uh, me, VFA. Uh, let's get to Toby. Here is our interview with Toby Harvey of Pager. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy, or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So, Toby, thanks, uh, thanks so much for being here. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so I, you know, I do my I do some pretty heavy research. Uh, you know, checked out your Twitter account, your LinkedIn. You describe yourself as a startup junkie, um, and I thought that was interesting because I think that now startups are 
they're almost it's almost like there's like a lifestyle in the startup world maybe the way there wasn't in like heavy manufacturing or something like that years ago um you know what does being a startup junkie mean well that's probably a nicer interpretation uh i've had a few folks question me about that and and ask <laughs> and about my sort of addiction to startups and the sort of high that comes with building something from the ground up and sort of the the scrappiness that inevitably a company is an early stage company that hopefully is growing quickly. Um, it's a rush and you build different kinds of relationships with people. You get to do different kinds of work and have a different level of personal responsibility. And I'm just totally addicted to that experience. Okay. Well, we'll definitely get into those, those yeah, many experiences. Sure. Let's get setting the table there. Let's dig a little further. Let's dig, go further back. Yeah. Um, you have a degree in government and from, from, from Georgetown. Um, you presumably getting that degree weren't thinking that you're going to be a tech entrepreneur. What what brought you from being a student in the public sector to being immersed in the startup world? It's a great question. Uh, funny story. At my high school graduation, one of the things they say about each student is where they're going to be in 15 years. And you sort of predict for yourself. And I said that in 15 years from my high school graduation, I was going to be secretary of state. I was dedicated. I was determined to work in government, public policy. That job is still technically open right now. Right. So, <laughs> but If you could yeah. let Trump know, that would be great. Um, and I think the more I learned about I, so I went to Georgetown to study foreign policy in the School of Foreign Service uh, with an eye toward that future. Um, but frankly, the most rewarding part of my Georgetown experience turned out to be my involvement in student government. Uh, I was the chair of my senior class committee. I loved like running a team or, or leading a team of people to uh, run campus activities and student events and student programming. Uh, I loved managing budgets and thinking about how to motivate people. And, and that was really where I realized I, I was best. And frankly, I wasn't as good in the classroom as one would hope for a future diplomat. Right. I, I, I immediately, this, this will, this, this show will play in like a week or two. So, or is it playing this week? I'm not even sure. Forget it. The show is playing now. That joke will actually be relevant. I was, right. af I was afraid the show will play in two weeks and that my, my secretary of state joke would be like, what do you mean? It's, it's clearly dot, dot, dot. Okay. Um, back on track. Hopefully here. there's a good name to fill that. Exactly. Dot, dot, dot. exactly. I was going to go with Romney, but I was like, ah, I don't know. I don't know who it's going to be. I don't think it's going to be. doesn't seem so promising at this yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so you transitioned to the, to the, to the startup world. Um, you know, you, well, I want to be clear that I didn't know that I wanted to transition to startups specifically. Um, I kind of thought retail was weirdly interesting. Okay. I basically moved to, and, and that's partially my, my family's in the retail business. Um, they run a headhunting firm for, uh, C-level execs in retail and luxury. And I sort of thought like that looks dynamic and interesting. Um, and I ended up moving to New York without a job in the fall after graduation, feeling like a hopeless loser and had coffee with as many people. And that's a constant theme here. Like if you feel desperate, like a hopeless loser, like sort of your your risk appetite is pretty high. Um, and I ended up just having coffee with anybody who would have coffee with me. And then anybody who would chat with me, I'd ask them for more introductions. And I just ran around New York heavily caffeinated for several weeks and eventually ended up in the office of one of the guilt founders, um, which is how I ended up there. So now I'm, I'm, I'm maybe I'm reluctant to ask you this in a, in a semi semi public or a public environment, but you know does that mean that you're willing to take any coffee call from someone else? Or you gonna, Pretty much, yeah. I very much embrace like a pay it forward, um, yeah. and um, basically anyone who emails me, and I'm part of the VFA mentorship program right. and all of that because I think it is important to to give folks a leg up on that. I think we're about to discover how many listeners we have based on how many people now contact you for coffee. Right, great, yeah. perfect. Can't yeah. wait. Bring it on. <laughs> so you so you end up in the in the in the um in the office of one of the 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 guilt founders and you so you see so did you start a a, a post graduate 
internship basically pretty much yeah okay. uh it was a foot so it was hilarious it was alexandra wilkes wilson one of the founders she's, she's been on our show amazing we stay close to this day but she was heavily pregnant you could tell the start like the company was just mayhem at the time and she sort of slumped in a corner and didn't know what to make of this 22 year old kid who wore a suit to the guilt offices which were very fashion forward <laughs> um and she basically you know we chatted for a bit she was very sweet very polite and she went to get somebody from hr just because she had no idea and it turns out that day a new employee at guilt man had raised his hand and said he was looking for an intern for research and strategy and, and business development support and so the a woman from HR, Sarah Patterson, who is now the head of people at Bonobos uh, and is still a good friend of mine, went and got Richard, my boss-to-be, and he basically put me through a case interview on the spot. Thankfully, I had been thought about interviewing for consulting firms at one point, so I'd done a bunch of case interview practice, but I was sweating through my suit and uh, basically... Uh, it turned out okay. And I got this internship, which was hourly and paid as a 22 year old out of college in New York. So, so how, how did you parlay that internship into ultimately becoming the director of strategy for Guilt City? Uh, I basically worked my ass off and never asked permission to, to kind of take on extra work that I wasn't totally paid for. Again, <coughs> um, it was hourly, so sort of limited in my capacity, but I, I worked nights and weekends on extra projects, um, like a total nerd and and tried worked really hard to prove myself i spent months pretty much writing down word for word what people were saying in meetings and then investopedia or like googling trying to understand what every term meant because i had no idea um from studying foreign policy to coming into a you know, e-commerce uh, environment i'd never really worked in the business world before uh, so i would literally transcribe conversations so that later i could figure out what they meant uh and if i you know, a lot of times with interns, I feel like you have downtime between a project that you finish and you're waiting for your very busy boss to get back to you and review it. And I would just do other work that wasn't asked of me. Um, and, and frankly, like worked really hard to build relationships. Our, the CEO at the time, Susan Lyon, sent out a company wide email saying, Oh, I'm a, I'm going to open up my office for just half hour office hours for this day. And 22 year old intern me apparently was the first person to respond and take a slot. It's that like sort of desperate fearlessness um, coming out again. And uh, what actually happened is there was no job for me at the end of my three-month stint. But luckily, the head of Guilt Man at the time, who I'd been working with, Nate Richardson, who is amazing and is probably single-handedly responsible for most of my career so far. Well, he comes up again later. Okay. Uh, he gave me a job in the warehouse in Brooklyn. And I spent three months basically project managing sample <clears throat> merchandise between photographers and uh, the logistics crew and like working really late nights. I did the role that three headcounts were assigned to single-handedly writing the description of every piece of clothing that was sold on the Guilt Man site at the time, um, knowing nothing about fashion. Um, and... Then eventually Nate moved over to Guilt City to start this new local services arm of Guilt. And I emailed him like, hey, remember me who you sent to the warehouse? And he immediately was like, perfect, I have a job for you. Like, mm. you're coming to the Guilt City team. I, I, I don't think this is universally true, but frequently true. I think that mo uh, frequently people work their hardest in their first jobs. For it sounds sure. like your evidence. So you're, you're, For sure. You embody that. Because it didn't stop there, too. Guilt City was an amazing place. Uh, you know, we went from pretty much zero people to 120 in about a year. Um, and I've never felt, even today, like as cohesive and as close with the team as we did there. And we worked our asses up. 
Can I say asses? You can say asses. Great. Uh, we worked our asses off and uh, had so much fun together. Um, but I think you're right. Like that first job is really where where you're the hungriest. Almost. Yeah, you, you don't know what hard. You don't know what the expectations are. So you exactly. just work. Like so, that was that same with yeah. me. I took an unpaid postgraduate or post undergraduate um, internship, and I it was the hardest I've worked. I mean, I've worked pretty hard and built my own company, but like I just. Uh, for considering I got paid zero, you at least got paid. Yeah. I mean, I was nights, weekend, whatever anyone wanted. You're just trying to prove yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, luckily, I had a lot of friends in investment banking at the time were, who were also working those long hours. So there was sort of a camaraderie there. Um, but yeah, it, just, it was all about just like proving I deserve to be there. So guilt's still on the rise when you join, or is it, it's a tremendous rise, uh, you know, uh, trajectory when you join. Um, it's, it's still exploding when you leave. You know, it had a this year kind of had a bit of a hard landing. Um, was sold for I think under the money it raised um, to I'm Canadian to a Hudson Bay Co, which is mm-hmm. the old, one of the oldest retailers in the world, let alone in Canada. Um, at that point, could you see any of the cracks? Like when you were there, or was it just like this is the tech energy and things are exploding? They're going to go on forever, and the party's on. Yeah, I left in April 2012. We had some hard layoffs the January before that, so it certainly wasn't a, a bed of roses at the time. Um, the cracks were, I think, starting to show just in the whole daily deal flash sale space at at large. It wasn't just guilt by any means. Um, and, but really that wasn't what it was about. It was still an amazing place to work. Um, I still know people who are there all these years later, um, or who now work for Hudson Bay company. It was more a personal, and this has been true along the way. I felt like I hit a ceiling. I'd been promoted a couple times into different strategy and business development titles um, at Guilt City, but I was pretty much doing the same job two years later, just with a better title and slightly more money. Uh, so I was ready to do something different. And, and my criteria for a job have always been, am I meeting interesting people and am I learning? I still felt like I was surrounded by interesting people, but I didn't feel like I was learning as much. Um, and I really wanted to go to a super early stage company and have that experience. That, that's interesting because you, you know, you feel like you hit a ceiling and then you go from, I don't know, like a 1200 person organization or something like that to a five three, person, four, yeah, five people at the a time, time yeah. hop. So, yeah. so tell us, I mean, tell us about the choice. What was the well, expectation? It wasn't really the best choice, but one of our early guilt city engineers um, had helped was one of the founders of Time Hop, and he's amazing. And we had gotten close in the early days of Guilt City. Um, and I wanted to work with him again. And I wanted to be hands on at again an early stage company. Uh, but at the time, Time Hop was just a daily email showing you your this day in history, uh, or just your day on social media one year ago. It was like your Instagram posts, your tweets, whatever you posted one day one year prior. Um, they had decided to go the app route and like build an app that showed a more like holistic this day in history experience. So it was really an engineering and product uh, project and I had had no experience. So I was working on partnerships with publishers and brands that were going nowhere. Anytime I asked the designer for material support, it was the opportunity cost was designed on the main product. And uh, the CEO, Jonathan Wagner, very smartly understood that this product needed to generate users in itself. And those users weren't going to come from marketing and, and partnership opportunities opportunities it was going to come from a like inherent virality of the product and a um 
k factor greater than one uh and and so we wouldn't allocate time to the stuff that i was working on so for a couple months i helped with hiring i recruited a couple engineers uh i did odd jobs but i didn't feel like i was adding value um so we had a very amicable split and another great opportunity came up um and i mean i still hang out with those guys all the time so um it it was I, i learned a lot jonathan taught me a lot about product that i didn't know before but i just didn't add enough value right it was just a, a two puzzle pieces that weren't fitting yeah so, they didn't need me now they need me or now they need <laughs> someone like me um but at the time it didn't make sense so you so you end up so you end up transitioning um uh, you know away from time hop towards waywire which is which is actually soon sold thereafter is mm-hmm. is that a is that a is that a good thing for you when you're there are you like wow, I kind of came here with a vision of taking this further. Yeah, it, you know, talking about public Waywire publicly is sensitive given Cory Booker's right. involvement, right? And there was some controversy at the end and, and some questions about his role in founding a startup and his relationships with Silicon Valley. Um, he's a great guy and, and uh, a great leader. And essentially, we sold the company when he entered the Senate race when Senator Lautenberg of New Jersey unexpectedly passed away and they held a special election. So it was complicated. It was a complicated decision. Um, <clears throat> felt like there was definitely some unfinished business. The product by no means was where we wanted it to be, nor it had it met any of our expectations. We had some really cool partnerships and some really great content. Um, but we, I, don't, I would say we hadn't hit product market fit yet. Um, and then we didn't totally have the chance. But now uh, Waywire is still around and, and the, the company that acquired it was great. Um, and, and Steve Rosenbaum is sort of like a guru of video and, and video curation specifically. Um, so they're doing some interesting things, but um, it was mostly about Corey's involvement and the and the timing of the election that predicated a lot of those decisions. Right. So you moved on to Pager where you are now, and that's the meat of our conversation today. Um, lots of uh, lots of exciting stuff going on at Pager. Um, when we chatted a little earlier, you said that that Pager kind of found you, um, and it's this amazing team of, of entrepreneurs. Maybe you can give a little bit of uh, you know the founding CTO of, of mm-hmm. Uber. Um, that's right. Uh, you know a few others. Um, if you can give us maybe a, the, their their flashy backgrounds, uh, <laughs> uh, but. How does how does this incredibly experienced team of entrepreneurs, you know, find Toby Harvey? Yeah, I think at the time they were really looking for sort of a jack of all trades to get things off the ground and specifically focused on the marketing side at first, um, though we sort of didn't realize the heavy operational lifting that would be needed from the get go. Uh, Nate Richardson, who was my boss at Guilt and actually the CEO of Waywire. Um, so this you, is where he comes you back. You see a pattern here. He introduced me okay. to this crazy French guy, Gaspard Druzy, who is the CEO of Pager, um, and who said he was working on some doctor thing and I should check it out. And I almost didn't take the meeting because I didn't know anything about healthcare, nor did I really have an avid interest in it at the time. Um, but I met with Gaspard and I think where Waywire was kind of a hard thing to explain to users, like video curation and discovery, but it's like, you know, these buzzwords and it's hard to, for somebody to understand why it's valuable. When I, when Gaspard explained to me, like when you're sick, you get to stay home, tap a few buttons on your phone, and a doctor will come to you. I was like, that's genius. Like, it's just so clear why you would want that. Like, when you feel that crappy, you don't want to move. And if you have kids and you're stressed out, of course you want somebody to come to you. And all these things, I was just immediately drawn to how powerful the proposition was to, like, the the user, to the customer. Um, then I started learning more about digital health and this, like, crazy exploding space and all of this amazing innovation in an industry that 
arguably should work better than any other industry because it touches something so fundamental as health. And I, you know, was immediately drawn to the idea. So I started a month later working full time. Um, the other founders were sort of wrapping up some projects and, and I had other businesses they were working on. Uh, we had a couple engineers overseas, uh, who are still with the company today and are amazing. One of them actually just, he was in Argentina for the last three years and moved here last week to continue full time with the company based here in New York. Mm. Uh, and it, those were the most exciting times. It was like a cliche windowless room in like one of those startup office, you know, the kind of like, it's called tech space. It's kind of like a WeWork, but less fancy. And it was awesome. It was just like so much excitement, so much possibility. We'd raise a little bit of seed funding. And like, again, that's where you could probably hear that, like, that's where I get the high. Like, that's what I love more than anything is that like idea of possibility and the idea that this scrappy small group of people is the one, we're the ones that are going to make it happen. So, so, I mean, what's, so you're describing this, this group of people, like there's clearly a bond that exists around, you know, developing this product together. But like, what is, I mean, can you describe that chemistry a little bit, a little bit more? Like what, like. Yeah, I've never, until Pager, where, like, you know, it's the earliest I've been where I felt like I added value and really, like, owned things and, and got to run with it. Um, it's interesting how I've never had relationships before other than maybe, like, my, my brothers and sisters who I can, like, fight tooth and nail with or, you know, verbally. And, <laughs> and then the next minute be, like, cracking jokes and, like, grab a drink and it's totally fine. Like, and it's accepted that that debate is part of the process. And I think that, comfort level comes with closeness and it's just from being in the trenches sharing the same stress sharing the same sort of pressure that you put upon yourself and the amount of pressure you put on each other um i, I don't know going through something difficult together i think brings people really close and um to this day that early team is, is still really close Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So I think you said that uh, that initially Pager was one of many projects for the founding team. And so how did how did you get them to galvanize their attention were you were you, were you working on multiple projects and or how did pager become the one well i think it was pretty quick that they realized they were really onto something um and of course when investment is on the table and a meaningful investment is on the table um that sort of predicates a a more full-time commitment from them but even today Gaspard is the CEO of, of another fintech company and was sort of wrapping up the the company he had founded before that um, Oscar who was the founding CTO of uber is involved in a lot of different startups and and is a I would say a leading voice around AI and and um, potential there in many different industries so but their their commitment and excitement about pager has um, been consistent throughout and I think we just realized we were onto something big and something that was sorely needed in the digital health world. And part of that has been the evolution of the product itself. We are certainly no longer just an app for doctor house calls. And our core user experience is centered around a chat with a, in real time with a nurse with lots of different care options behind that. One of them being the, our, our house call, our bread and butter. But you can also chat uh, with a doctor via FaceTime. You can now schedule appointments. You can get referrals to specialists. You can manage all sorts of different healthcare needs um, through this sort of 
service-based chat. So I think as that product evolved too, like those, the founders have, have evolved with it, um, but they've been committed and full-time since the very, very early days. So I, I, it was, I was a quick turnaround. I was impressed by Gaspar's uh, um, sort of frank talk and contrition. I, 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 I found this quote from him um, really just so honest. You know, we've tested the model because you, you, you yourself just talked about how the, the, the product has evolved. We've tested the model going direct to consumer. It's not a business we think is valuable, and it's not a business that we think works. Um, so, what's, I mean, what's the problem with just being a sole direct-to-consumer house call business? I'd say it's a business problem more so than like a user experience problem. Um, it our our run in New York has proven that it's expensive to acquire patients direct to consumer uh, and. Healthcare is fundamentally a channel-driven business. Uh, we discover our doctors and our care through our insurers or through our employers who you know, pay for our insurance and and from recommendations from other providers. So that de- direct-to-consumer plunge is is difficult and expensive. And frankly, trying to operate outside of insurance dynamics, which we attempted to do at first, doesn't make any sense. We all pay for our healthcare with insurance. Now under the Affordable Care Act, more people are insured than ever. So an out-of-pocket sort of direct-to-consumer model was always going to be niche, and that wasn't really our vision. And so we we did really shift or evolve to this enterprise-driven strategy where we work with the payers, that includes both insurance plans and self-insured employers, and um, provider systems, health systems, hospitals, doctors' offices on the other side. And we're more the technology product that glues them together and helps patients navigate uh, the health system and, and in a way that aligns with the enterprise partner, the health plan. Okay, I definitely want to come back to that. But sure, it's what, complicated. No, no, yeah. it's, it's 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 super. I just want I, I'm I'm curious about. Admittedly, I'm like a direct to consumer skeptic, right? So, yep. like we have used when we lived in in New York, at least we the, the, it's, it's certainly less available in in Boston. Um, you know, we've used some of the direct consumer. Um, I don't want to I don't want to uh, disparage anyone in particular. The services are always great, but like in I, healthcare specifically, or? No, no, in in other other services. Gotcha. Um, uh, and and I'm always like I don't understand how this can actually be a business. It's great that they're that they're bringing this to our house. Um, I don't right. know how the density right. is, is there for this for this company to for for this person to be traveling from New Jersey to our place to Long Island, you know, at this cost. Like, how could this work? As a long leading question, are you skeptical of having transitioned from a from a direct to consumer model? Are you skeptical of the direct consumer? Like it seems like, how many more delivery apps can can there be out there? How many more competitors in this in this space for not just for delivery but for for performing service in someone's home? Are you skeptical of this model in general or just for healthcare? Very uh, long question. I am not that skeptical. Um, I just think we're in the very early stages of it. Uh, and if you look at what Uber is doing with optimizing um, passenger drop-off and pickup times and locations, right? clearly they're, tr- they're working very hard to never have a driver have an empty car. Mm-hmm. If you look at Postmates offering subscriptions, right, that's a way for them to make this. So some of it will come down to the consumer ultimately paying more. And there's been a lot of controversy around Postmate delivery charges or surcharges. And, and I think they're trying to mitigate some of the, those uh, surprises with something like a subscription fee for their most frequent users. Right. Uh, I think demand inherently makes it easier. Because 
is you you can have one delivery person covering a narrow geographic footprint and sort of keep busy back to back. And one of the inspirations for Pager was actually a doctor house call service in France called SOS Médecin, and Gaspard is French. He grew up getting house calls from doctors, and it, it was started 50 years ago to tackle some of the same problems in Fran- that France was experiencing that we are now, uh, overuse of the, the emergency department for sort of basic primary care. And uh, at SOS, it's a different model. It's actually a nonprofit, but they have sort of a doctor does 17 to 18 house calls in a pretty like sh- in an eight hour shift because they're generally very concentrated because there's plenty of demand and everyone's using it. So I, I think we'll see smart technology and um, growth drive more viability in these businesses. And, and we'll also see it in the short to midterm consumers paying more for, for the convenience of those different services. So in short, I'm a dinosaur. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. You can't, you uh, can't kill my optimism. Yeah. You're, 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 you're still optimistic. I'm still skeptical. There, I mean, uh, these are young companies in the grand scheme of things and they're, they're still trying to make things work. Right. Yeah. I, I get the delivery side. I just, for me, it's, it's the service providing side where I'm like, I don't see how this could be efficient enough to, um, to, you don't need such density to make it efficient for the provider. Right. But I mean, but it seems like, anyway, we, this is so beyond well, for the scope. Healthcare, right? And um, not to get too esoteric, but, um, a lot of where house calls are proving the most valuable are with just the highest risk populations. Healthcare's classic Pareto principle 20% right. of the sickest, most expensive people incur 80% of the total. Uh, unnecessary cost to the system. So if you have somebody who's a frequent flyer at the ER and instead you can send them a house call, a, a, a clinician on a house call, even if that clinician has to drive multiple hours to get there and it's a day of that clinician's time, it's probably less expensive than the unnecessary ER visit. So right. healthcare is a unique beast in so many ways and and definitely when it comes to the on-demand world. That's, 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 that's actually a really interesting example. Um, so, so yes, I mean, let, let's talk about that. Let's, let's sure. talk about the evolution to this model that, that is kind of a hybrid model that makes a lot more sense for you guys. Um, <clears throat> how does that model present itself? Like, is it just sort of presented through the data and the use? You're like, oh, this is the consumer showing us what it needs? I mean, experts aren't lying when they say, you know, it's all about collecting data and understanding your experience and iteratively testing different uh, product features and understanding how users respond to them. We started off by having house calls for every single need that came in. Uh, Then we quickly realized we needed to have a call right before to kind of confirm the details of what the patient needed, make sure they weren't having a real emergency and sitting around for an hour. Um, And then and we were like, oh, we can solve a bunch of things on this call. Actually, there's no need to send the doctor. And as we got busier, right. that was very attractive. Well, and then it was, wow, from that call and that triage information, it can help us make a much smarter decision around what to bring or which provider to send. And are is there an option to send a nurse to sort of collect a sample and then have a doctor remotely um, collect that information? And then this was also around the time that chat as sort of a, converse, a commerce interface or a conversational commerce interface was starting to arise. And we're like, well, if we can do this via chat and a nurse in a command center can be having a bunch of chats at the same time versus a phone call where by nature of it, you can only talk to one person at a time. So it's sort of very much like step by step. We just learned and and iterated on the experience. And it's been both a benefit to the patient and a way for us to streamline our operations and get way more efficient. So presumably this is the insight that that leads you to to big healthcare systems that the, you know, exactly. the argument that 
hey, we can make this lower cost and more efficient for you. Exactly. And for an insurance company who's sharing in your decisions about healthcare and where you choose to spend and how you choose to spend, they want to make sure, and I they don't have a good rep, but I, I do believe that insurance companies want to make sure you get the care you need. It's good for them business-wise in the long term, uh, but they want you to get clinically appropriate care at the lowest cost possible. And frankly, most pa- most of the time, that makes sense for patients too. Right. If you can be treated over the phone or via FaceTime, you don't have to go anywhere, and you're comfortable in the diagnosis, uh, and and the the provider is comfortable delivering that diagnosis and not incurring any liability or, or putting the patient in any danger, then and that's a win for everybody. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Like yeah. I, I've been staving off going to the doctor for about two weeks because yep. I just don't even know how to navigate the system. Yep. We moved. I don't know who my doctor is. Yep. I, I don't have time to sit there and wait. To I mean, figure out who my new doctor is going to be. And I, I just need an inhaler. I'm asthmatic. And it's totally. like I just asked a guy. I, sh- I should stop telling my story here, but no, I just asked a guy who's, who's a doctor on my hockey team. I'm like, you're a doctor. I need an inhaler. Can you just write me a script? And he's like, sure. Exactly. That was it. I, so, I waited two weeks. Like, so uh, our, our our chairman Walter Jin, who um, founded the healthcare practice at the Carlisle Group and is amazing. His brother is an ER doctor and he talks about how every time he's sick, he texts him and his brother basically tells him what to do. It's like, oh, I'll just write you a script for that. Or you need to, you should probably go see your primary care doctor or that sure. sounds really bad. He's like, basically, I want to build that experience for everybody. Like the right. ability to text your ER doctor brother. I've effectively used your service outside the confines of your service exactly. by just emailing the guy in my hockey team exactly. to get him to do this for me. Yeah. And it's powerful. And it's great for everybody involved in the system because so many people um, by nature of not understanding this very complex system and convoluted system will incur unnecessarily expensive healthcare costs. And this becomes more important to consumers as we take on higher deductibles. Over 40% of the country has a deductible now of $1,000 or more, which means they're spending at least $1,000 in a year before they get full coverage from their insurance companies on on their care. So if you have to spend up to $1,000 and and you get sick or or something happens, you're going to be way choosier about where you go. Um, uh, both in terms of price and and That's the experience. Very interesting. <laughs> I'm getting it's, this. I've never. Okay. All signs are just converging on. I, right. There is no doubt in my mind that something like Pager will exist. Obviously, there are big questions around whether we're going to be the team to pull it off. I like to think so, but there's no doubt that this fundamentally is is going to be an experience that we all um, have when it comes to our healthcare. So Pager's pretty well armed. You you just raised six million dollars. You. Um, may, might raise more. What does the raise allow you to do that you might not otherwise be able to do? It make it allows us to make big strategic investments in AI, which we're doing very actively. Um, and we're very much focused at this point on giving smarter tools to the nurses, the clinicians broadly uh, to make decisions within the pager experience. Uh, it allows us, you know, we, as we've talked about, we sort of evolved the strategy over time and that's required um re-engineering our efforts and investing in new areas and um, investing more in business development and relationships with large uh, players in in the healthcare space. And uh, it allows us to really build out the team. So speaking of building out the team, you have 50 members in your team now. Yep. You already talked wistfully um, and with with uh, with um, you know a, a little bit of adrenaline about those early days and the, mm-hmm. the, the you know the guys in a, in a in a you know nondescript office working together to make this thing happen. You know, 50 is a big cultural difference from five. How do you how do you maintain 
that culture, or I mean, I don't know if you can maintain that specific culture. How do you help to curate a culture that is that's still meaningful to you and, and get people to buy into the same kind of excitement? Yeah, it it still blows my mind how deliberate and how conscientious you have to be about it every single day and every single conversation that you had have. Um, it's one of the hardest things are, is defining people's roles, especially as the company changes so much and the company does grow and. Uh, you have to give away responsibilities to new people that you hire, but you know, go deeper on, on your area of focus. And it's hard. And, um, I wouldn't say we get it right every time. Um, but, but through a deliberate focus on making people feel empowered to do their work and also telling the story of why our work is important. I think a mission and a dedication to that mission can get you through the darkest of times. Uh, and, I mean, there's there's no silver bullet is kind of the hardest part of it. Right. Are you guys now the typical startup with the free snacks and uh, pool table? Or we have guys... free snacks. We don't go overboard. No pool table. <laughs> no Our pool office table? is pretty scrappy, um, but but we have a, a healthy amount of new snacks. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So you talked a little bit about about AI. Are there are, there, are you guys are heavily investing in that? Um, you know, are there, are, are, do you have any aspects of it that are live already in our experience? Are we, are we unaware that when we're talking to Pedro, we've got some bots working on our behalf? You're never talking to a bot directly. You're always talking to a real person, but there are bots that are now helping, um, the, the nurses specifically in the command center, um, with tools that help make them more efficient. So sometimes, uh, it, it tools for some canned responses for questions that they ask all the time, particularly at the beginning of an interaction and for collecting demographic information or any sort of like basics. That's an obvious starting point. Um, but also now what will launch within the next couple of months is a better, uh, triage tool that sort of combine that helps takes the patient's medical history and their current chief complaint and the nurse's um, feedback and sort of generate stronger recommendations for them on what might be happening. The dream is to really integrate uh, deeper with, with the EMRs, the emergency medical record, uh, sorry, electronic medical record and, and pull the patient's history to give a more contextual um, decision or, or recommendation to the nurse. Uh, but that's kind of a, a future step as well. So right now it's all about tools in the command center to make it more efficient and um, collecting data over time. It takes a lot of data to actually make these recommendations meaningful. So we're very much in the beginning stages of that. Yeah. You're like, you're partially saying why like, you need to raise money. Yeah. Right. So you're, you're, I mean, you're kind of saying I'm piecing, putting these two things together. I mean, you were kind of saying earlier, like you imagine a future where whether it's pager and obviously you're hopeful it's pager, um, or someone else like healthcare is, a, is, is about to, to have a real change in, in the way that we communicate with the system. Can you gaze in your crystal ball? I mean, do you guys have a, have a, do you guys have a, you know, a team futurist who's like, this is what the experience is going to look like when it's right, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I wish I, I wish I were that visionary. Um, I, I, I'm very skeptical about the idea of AI replacing clinicians in any way. <clears throat> I think for a very long time, um, if not forever, they'll be, they'll enable clinicians because it's just not the way people consume care and, and interact with their health, um, to, for robots really to be able to do that effectively for us now. Um, I think that, for a lot of administrative questions that right now we call a receptionist or we have to get on the phone to our insurance plans, which is miserable or any of those sort of like non-clinical interactions, all of those should and can be automated through much better systems than what exists today. Like those horrible phone trees. 
don't make anybody happy. Um, so I think that's probably like the lowest hanging fruit in terms of a real automated um, healthcare experience. Okay. So we, you know, we have a new president coming in um, <clears throat> and he's made lots of promises about shaking up the Affordable Care Act from a non-political and apolitical, strictly pager perspective here. Is shaking up the Affordable Care Act a good thing, a bad thing? Is it, are you indifferent about it? We're largely indifferent. Um, the the market for pager and the need for pager supersedes any any of that. Um, the shift to like value based care and insurance companies starting to share risk with providers, uh, meaning they're both responsible for the financial decisions of their patients, is it been happening for decades. Um, it's been accelerated by the Affordable Care Act, but mostly from a um, but not really from like a tangible regulatory perspective. It's sort of just like predicated this mindset around from mindset from the payers to to start shifting their strategy. You've seen a lot of consolidation in the space as a result of that. Um, but frankly, the need for pager, the need to give people better access to high quality care and control the cost that none of nothing that could happen to the Affordable Care Act will change that. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I I'm skeptical of, what, of of how much will happen to the Affordable Care Act at all because right. once you start guaranteeing, once you start saying things like no one's going to, the preconditioning, the, the preexisting condition. Um, Which is what know, everybody cares about most right. of all and you have to pay for it somehow. So. Well, yeah, it's like, well, but once you have that, it's like you, you ugh, I mean, I'm going too far down the rabbit hole. Right. Once, once you have that, you have a need to have lots of people in the system yep. to cover those. Who it's have hard to pick conditions. apart the different pieces, cherry pick the pieces of the yeah. legislation that, that you want to keep and, and get rid of. So. Yeah, it's, I mean, it becomes impossible. We'll do yeah. a different different show on, on totally. that one. Uh, <laughs> um, and look, anything that'll simplify healthcare, I think, is, is fantastic. Um, so I, I do I, think it'll have an impact on, on folks that are relying really heavily on the exchanges and, and sort of individual if something changes, right? Um, if you look at other digital health companies that have really targeted that exchange population and are born of um, the Affordable Care Act and some of the changes that came about, it'll be interesting to see what their strategies look like moving forward. So. Moving back to you, I'm I'm I, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious. You know, you're you know you're a startup junkie, right? So so is there is there a is there a, a, a should we be should should the you know the founders of Pager be worried like oh boy soon enough we'll be a mature enough company that we have to be worried that Toby is gonna gonna bolt because he he needs the micro startup to be uh, to get that rush. I mean, we've very loosely talked about future projects that we could do together. Um, and I think I keep, I keep a running ever note of different ideas and concepts that I'm excited about and digging into and constantly, I, as nerdy as this sounds, like whiteboarding with people, different, different ideas. Right now, there's, uh, if leaving Pager would mean a lot of unfinished business. And, um, I, I think the best times are still ahead of us. I'm really excited to have the experience of scaling something really big and the challenges that come with that. Because if I do start my own thing one day, I, I think any skills or any learnings from that experience will only help. Um, so, but one day. You're, you're, you're happy for now. Happy uh, for there, now. There's, there's still enough yeah. change in your day-to-day -day and enough adrenaline that it's, it's keeping you satisfied. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, it's good. 
But you don't imagine that this will be the end of the line for you. <laughs> You'll be a pager for life. Probably yeah, not. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to lie to the pager founders. <laughs> I, I don't think the pager yeah. founders would expect that. I don't think so either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's funny. Um, okay. So, I mean, you st we started by talking about how you're, you're a tech junkie, but your other tagline is aspiring change agent. Um, you know, in your own eyes, what would you need to, to do to get the aspiring off your moniker and, and, and really be that just straight up? I'm not an, I'm not an aspiring change agent. I'm a change agent. Uh, maybe never. I, I, you do your best work when when there's something that you want to be or something that you attain. I, I don't know when if anybody ever calls themselves a change agent, I would immediately discount them and uh, and uh probably guess that they weren't. Uh, I don't know. I was drawn to government in the first place. I think I don't think I was this aware then that because it touches so many lives, right? There's nothing more central to our lives than government for better or for worse, regardless of how you feel about it. Like it touches our lives in a meaningful way. And the idea that it would work really well, or that really great people would be working in it is, is fundamentally important. So obviously I sort of moved away from government specifically, but never that idea, like working on something that touches a lot of lives and meaningfully impacts people and for the better, ideally right um but i don't know so it's always been important to me to be a force for change a force for something that's better for people um i don't know what the benchmark is to be able to say that i can like scratch that aspiring off uh <laughs> nobel i guess you know right <clears throat> right maybe like I, I don't know. Um, there isn't <laughs> I'll one. Let you I me. never want that hunger to go away. So maybe I'll just keep it forever. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. Um, I mean, give us, give us a, you know, so what, what are the, you know, not peering too far in the future to the, to the, to the, the end where we're in the, the, the a total new reality for healthcare. But like, what are the, what are the mountains that you, that you really want to, you want to climb in the, in the next little while with pager? Um, where would you like to see the, see it go in, in you know, two, five years? Yep. Um, so, I think we'll, the biggest piece that I want to see us accomplish is work better with health systems to integrate with patient medical records and patient history. This is from a very much like a user experience and, and the core product um, to when somebody comes in, have better contextual information for who they are and their past medical experiences and therefore be able to deliver better care. Like that fundamentally is really important. And we're working with some really smart forward thinking systems like Baylor Scott and White in Texas um, and, and some folks down in Florida to, to do just that. But really uniting the pager experience with um, the massive health system behind it is really important from a strategic perspective strategic perspective i want to see assign more relationships with health plans and reach more people and get the pager experience in front of more lives um and and we have a lot of promising conversations that should bear fruit in 2017 um and i want to see us continue to your point earlier like really focus on the culture and and the composition of the team we're hire within the next couple months the team is going to grow probably 30 percent we're hiring oh, wow. another 15, almost 20 people. Um, and that's going to come with another wave of change. And we need to be really thoughtful about how we set ourselves up for success, set people up to really love the work that they do, make sure that they, you know, stay on mission and, and that we build a company that, that in itself is a force for impact and change agency. 
Well, one of the great one of the great things about this about this for me at least about this podcast is you know we're dealing with with companies that by and large are in their growth stage and yeah. and uh, and so um, you know I feel like we're always in the early early chapters which which tends to lead to the same conclusion which is we look forward to to, to hearing more about this and you're very much invited back as this as the Thank story you. continues to be written we we hope that we can uh, we can have you back in the two in the five years to, to hear more about it we'd love to do that thanks so much thanks so much for being here appreciate it. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for twenty-five dollars per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. Five dollars more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at twenty-four monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. Thirty-five dollars per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.